Well, let's pray together once more. Father, we stand here or sit here with open Bibles and we just had Genesis 49 read for us and we've sang to you and we've prayed to you and now we want to close our mouths and hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak through this, your word this morning to us, your people. We acknowledge that without the help of your Holy Spirit, both to me and to all of us, then uh, our labor in the Lord will be in vain this morning. We will not receive what we need to receive apart from your spirit. So spirit come and dwell in our hearts, dwell in our midst, illuminate your word, bring conviction, encouragement, faith, repentance, whatever we need, may you grant to us this morning. You satisfy, Lord, the desires of every living thing. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love as presented to us in your word this morning. So we commend ourselves to your care in these moments together and ask your blessing to remain with us, especially the presence and help of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is week 13 in our journey through the life of Joseph, and we're coming up to the end. We've got one more sermon, Lord willing, next week, where we'll round out this sermon series that we've entitled, The Maker in the Mess. We've tried to see God at work in this complex family that has many problems, but God has been working behind the scenes to prepare a way for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into the world through the family of Jacob. Now this morning, I'm not going to go typical verse by verse through this passage. Uh, it's, a, it's a strange passage. It's a passage where Jacob is on his deathbed, as we saw last week, and he already, on, in chapter 48, he spent some time blessing Joseph and his, grandson, and his sons, or his grandsons. And then this week, he's going to deal with the rest of the boys, including Joseph. And so he, he issues a word of prophecy over each one of them, and we're not going to dive into details as to how each one of those specific prophecies were fulfilled. He, ta- he gives a, prophes- a prophetic word to all 12 boys, summarized in verse 28, as a blessing that's suitable to each one of them, and he gives a blessing to Reuben, and Simeon, and Levi, and Zebulun, and Issachar, and Dan, and Gad, and Asher, and Naphtali, and Joseph, and Benjamin all 12 sons, all 12 tribes of Israel, all these boys are going to flourish in various ways into, into nations or into one nation, but many peoples made up of that one nation, namely the nation of Israel and the, the peoples that are going to flow from these individual families. And the vast majority of the chapter, verses 1 through 28, is dealing with these specific prophecies that Jacob gives as a father to his 12 sons. And then in verses 29 through 32, Jacob makes requests regarding his burial. And then in verse 33, Jacob dies. And that's that's the passage. It's Jacob's prophecies to his sons. It's Jacob's request for his burial. And then it's Jacob's death. However, this morning, what I want us to do in chapter 49 is focus specifically on Jacob's words to Joseph and to Judah. They have been our two dominant characters throughout the last 13 weeks. And so I want to give them the most time this morning, and not just me, but because Jacob does. Jacob gives five verses each to these two boys, more than any of his other sons, more than Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and all the rest. And what's interesting 
is what he pronounces over these two boys and what a stark contrast they are to each other. Joseph is going to assume the role of the firstborn, but Judah is going to assume the role of kingship. And so it's, it, normally when those blessings get passed on from a father like Abraham or Isaac, when those blessings get passed on, they get passed on to one person. Those are united in one person. The king is the firstborn. But rather here, we see a specific blessing given to Joseph and a specific blessing given to Judah. However, both of those blessings, both Joseph and Judah, represent Jesus Christ in different ways. Both of their blessings, Joseph as the firstborn and Judah as the king, are fulfilled in the coming firstborn son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king. So this chapter is not the first time that Joseph and Judah have been contrasted or closely linked. In fact, it's interesting, this is an interesting part of the Joseph story, at every critical moment in the Joseph story, there's Judah, present, active. In fact, at the beginning of the Joseph story, right, in Genesis chapter 38, we get a whole chapter about Judah, and then in chapter 39, we get a whole chapter about Joseph. And then at the climax of the Joseph story, where he's getting ready to reveal himself to his brothers, he's already ascended to, to kingship in Egypt, and he's getting ready to reveal his, to himself to his brothers who have come to him after this during this time of famine, and it's Judah there who's the critical linchpin in saving this family as he steps forward and offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin. And then right here at the end of the story, in chapter 49, again, Judah and Joseph are held together. So I want us to notice this contrast this morning, this contrast that Jacob gives between Joseph and Judah and how we can learn from this contrast, what we can learn from this contrast, and specifically the three words of encouragement that come to us as a result of this contrast. So let's spend some time, first of all, here's the first point. These are going to be more general lessons that we, that we, that we learn from Jacob's interaction with Joseph and Judah and how that foreshadows the Lord Jesus Christ's treatment of us. So number one, grace for bad people. Grace for bad people. This is mainly the word of blessing that comes to Judah. I want you to notice here, verse 8, look again. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Verse 10, the scepter of kingship shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is a remarkable evidence of God's grace. You remember Judah's past? It's by no means spotless. Judah participated in the plot to sell Joseph into slavery, just like all his brothers did. He married an ungodly woman, just like many of his brothers did. He had children that were so ungodly that God killed them. And he slept with a prostitute and then found out it was his daughter-in-law. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Why? Why does he deserve it? Judah's not better than his brothers. In fact, he was sinful like Reuben, the oldest boy. They both committed incest. He was a murderer similar to Simeon and Levi, even though he didn't literally murder Joseph. His brothers certainly wanted to, and while Judah almost took part in a murder. But here's the thing. Judah was redeemed. Judah was redeemed. Sin has consequences, but we can be redeemed. You remember in chapter 38, let's look back at Judah's redemption here, at least the beginnings of it. In Genesis chapter 38, the whole chapter is given over to Judah and his activities. And remember, I won't go into all the details of this story again, but it's a, it's a sordid tale. And we get to verse 26, when Judah's found out in his sin, and he says, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, talking about Tamar, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. So there's an admission of guilt. There's an acknowledgement of unrighteousness on the part of Judah. And then Judah emerges as a result of his repentance and admission here, Judah begins to emerge across the Joseph story as sort of a leader among the brothers. Remember, he's the one in chapter 43, if you'll turn there, who offers his life as a pledge for Benjamin's safety, promising that to Jacob that he will in fact return Benjamin. Genesis chapter 43, verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand, shall you require him. See, Reuben, the older brother, just offered his sons. He didn't offer himself, but Judah steps in and offers his own life. He says, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And then we actually see him willing to keep this promise in Genesis chapter 44, after the silver cup incident, chapter 44, verse 13. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Remember, after finding out that the cup was in Benjamin's sack. And then as we keep reading, we read in the second part of chapter 44, this long, the longest speech in the book of Genesis is given by Judah as a defense, as an appeal to Joseph to please pardon, have mercy, and that he will offer himself. This is the end of chapter 44. He says, verse 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain. In other words, keep me instead of the boy, Benjamin, as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that, we, that would find my father. So here you have Benjamin stepping in and, or Judah stepping in in Benjamin's place and saying, blame me interceding for his brother. This is, a man, this is a man that's been changed. And Jacob sees that, and he acknowledges that. But here's the interesting thing. The Lord knew exactly what would happen when he sovereignly brought both Judah and Joseph into temptation. Right now, I'm contrasting chapter 38 and chapter 39, because they're there for a reason. 
he knew, God knew, that only by grace Joseph would remember him and stand. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape so that you may escape the temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? And that's what Joseph does. He finds the way of escape that God has provided. But God also knew that Judah would forget him and fall and become an example of 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. Both of these events would be used by God to accomplish his redemptive purposes. The righteousness of Joseph and the unrighteousness of Judah. Yet someone who remembers God, Joseph, and stands, and someone who forgets God and falls can both be incorporated into the people of God. That's grace. That's what we're talking about. Judah and Joseph get the same grade. Because salvation, as we've been reminded this morning in our catechism question, is all of grace. It's not I O I O, off to church I go. Genesis 39, Joseph is a victim who is separated, who is separated from foreign women. He's maintaining purity, and then God sends him to jail and uses him to preserve the line of the Messiah. Judah, in chapter 38, is a victimizer who associates with foreign women, commits immorality, and then God turns it for good and brings the Messiah out of it. Both are used of God in different ways. This is what Ian Duguid says. God was at work in Joseph's life, listen, because he obeyed God and resisted temptation, and absent from Judah's life because he gave in to temptation and fell into sin. We tend to think that God surely must have loved Joseph because he was such a hero and must have been really disappointed in Judah because he was such a loser. We then transfer that thought to our own experience. God really loves us when we obey and resist temptation. He hates us or is at least disappointed in us when we sin. It is certainly true that God hates sin. But if there is a lesson that is central to the Joseph story, it is that God uses things that he hates to accomplish goals that he loves. He's not just at work in and through Joseph, but in and through Judah as well. Ultimately, the Messiah will come through the line of Judah. And you know why God wants it to come through the line of Judah? Because he wants to give hope to sinners. Because when we look at the sterling example of Joseph, which for which we should be thankful, be no Messiah without him, preserving that family in a time of famine, God using him in that way. But nevertheless, God didn't say, I'm going to bring him through the line of Joseph. I want a, I want a real righteous man. Now he says, I want an unrighteous man that I change by grace because I want that to be the line through which I bring the Messiah into the world. And that's exactly who, what he does. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. This is Moses commenting on this whole account. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. But not yet. Not yet, but he's coming. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. In the days of David, when your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. But that kingdom's not yet, David. still to come. 
And then we read about him in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by the Tamar, a prostitute, the daughter-in-law. This is the way Jesus' genealogy reads, not through the line of Joseph. Well, he's included in his brothers. But it's Judah who's signaled as the one in whom the Messiah would come. And then Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but the son of the son, he says, the Lord Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So Judah's scepter is in the hand of Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of that promise. So this first point teaches us, and the way God deals with Judah here is that there is grace. There's grace for all people. No one has blown it too much where they are beyond the pale of God's forgiveness and reconciling work and grace. If you will do what Judah did, admit your guilt, repent of your sin, entrust yourself to the mercy of God. If you will do that, you will be treated the same way that Judah was treated because there is grace for all of us as demonstrated in the life of Judah. Point number two, there's not only grace for all people, there's vindication for afflicted people. And this is what I love about our God, is when people are mistreated, and when they're abused, and when they're maligned, and when they're handled in all sorts of unjust ways, our God notices, and our God cares, and our God defends. Because there is vindication for afflicted people, two people in particular, and I want to talk about both of them. First of all, a woman is here who's not mentioned in this chapter, but who's vindicated in this chapter, and her name is Leah. You know who Leah is? Leah was despised, Leah was hated, Leah was rejected. Leah was abused. Leah was mistreated by Jacob. And no doubt, the choice of Judah by God as the line through which the Messiah would continue is in response to the vindication of his mom, Leah. While she is not mentioned directly in the Joseph story, without the backstory of Rachel and Leah... Rachel, after all, being the woman whom Jacob really wanted to marry and really loved, then the favored children of Joseph and Benjamin and the sibling rivalry that's at the core of the story would make no sense. So Leah is in the background here. Remember, Leah was the woman Jacob was tricked by Laban into marrying, and she was his wife by obligation, unloved, unlovely, whom Jacob didn't want, but God did. God wanted her. And it was she, not the beautiful Rachel, who is the mother of the son of the promise. Let's look back at Leah's wonderful testimony in Genesis chapter 29. Hold your finger in 49, turn back 
about 20 chapters. Genesis 29 is where we read of this whole incident. And I want to read verses 31 through 35 as Leah begins having children through Jacob. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. That's our God. You're going to be hated by people? Watch me bless you. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Say, look, I've got a boy now. The other wife doesn't. This will make Jacob love me. No, it won't. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. In verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. She got to the point where she was no longer going to look horizontal for any vindication or hope. She's going to place her faith solely in God. By that fourth boy, she's praising God and God alone. She's not looking at those boys for a means to something else, for a means to get that man's love and attention. No. I'm going to praise the Lord that he's given me four sons. And the fourth one is Judah. And that's the one that God's going to bring the Messiah through. Lots of lessons there. Lots of lessons there about God's love for the marginalized and the afflicted and the abused. But there's a second person who's also vindicated in this chapter, and that's Joseph. Verse, chapter 49, verse 8. Let's go back to chapter 49. And let's read, well, we'll come back to 49.8 about Judah here in a second, but I want you to look at God's, uh, Jacob's words to Joseph in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. Look at verse 23. The archers bitterly attacked him, namely these brothers of his, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. In other words, God was with him. By the, verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. I mean, how many times can he say, blessings, 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 blessings on you. Why? Because you were treated terribly. And God loves to put maximum blessing over maximum abuse. And that's the way he did it. Said so Joseph gets word after word after word of blessing. Now let's put Joseph and Judah together here. Look at verse 8 again. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. 
it says, your father's sons shall bow down before you. Now, Jacob depicts the coming king from Judah with imagery that closely resembles the Joseph narrative, right? Doesn't that sound like Joseph? He's saying those words to Judah. Read them again. Imagine if we put the word Joseph in the place of Judah, which I will now for emphasis. Verse 40, chapter 49, verse 8. Joseph, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Isn't that what was promised him in the dreams in Genesis 37? But now they're being applied to Judah. But that he's doing it in a way that intentionally resembles the Joseph story. Judah's brothers will praise and even bow down before him, which is the same word that's used three times when the brothers bowed down to Joseph in their dreams in Genesis 37. And another three times this word is used when they bow down before him in the Egyptian court in Genesis 42 and 43. Indeed, the image of 11 brothers bowing to their royal sibling reads like a summary of the preceding Joseph story. This similarity is deliberate. It's deliberate. When we ask what the coming Messiah will look like, we have an answer provided in Jacob's words. He's not going to look like Judah. He's going to look like Joseph. So this is not an endorsement of Judah's sin. It's an endorsement of Joseph's righteousness and saying, that's what my son's going to look like. By drawing a line from Joseph to the future king of Judah, or who will come from Judah, Moses here explicitly folds the Joseph narrative into Israel's largest story, which will culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. So the account of Joseph is not an end in itself. It's a pattern for God's work in the future. God uses Joseph to turn back the effects of the curse and accomplish in part, just in part though, his promises to Abraham. Perhaps Moses spends so much time on Joseph to show us that God can pull off the impossible even through a seemingly insignificant Jew who's been rejected by his brothers. Because that's the life that Jesus was going to live. So that his people could anticipate a coming Joseph who would finally and completely fulfill all of God's promises. So there's vindication for afflicted people here. There is no wasted suffering, especially unjust suffering at the hands of unjust people. God takes notice of it all. God took notice with Leah. God took notice with Joseph. And so when we read in Psalm 68, verse 5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. He means it. Father of the fatherless, Joseph. Protector of widows, Leah, is God. And this is why when James comes along in James 1.27 and says, you want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? You be like God in his holy habitation. You visit orphans and widows in their distress, and you keep yourself unstained from the world. That's pure and undefiled religion. Why? Because that's what God the Father's like. God the Father cares about afflicted people. God the Father loves those that no one else loves. And we should be the same way. 
If we want to be a church that is blessed and infused with the power of God, you've got to love people nobody loves. We got to find them and love them till it hurts. It's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to be messy. It's going to be hard. It's going to be risky. There's going to be lots of tears, but God's spirit will be there because that's who he is. He's not after the big show. Let's look really good as Christians. Let's make it real sexy in here. Let's make it real attractive to the world. No! Power of God is gone. When you love those who don't love, are not loved by anyone, who are afflicted, who are marginalized, who are left forgotten by the world, that is where our God is. He has pledged himself to those people because he's the father of the fatherless and the protector of widows. So may God make all of his churches like that so that we would know his presence. It's not going to come from doing things the world's way. It's going to come from doing things God's way and caring about the things that God himself cares about, which is very, very hard and very, very worth it. So that's the second point, vindication for afflicted people. We've seen grace for all people, vindication for afflicted people. Third and final point, hope for all people. Hope for all people. Now, where do we, where do we see this? Well, we see it again in the coming together of the stories of Judah and Joseph. Jacob's expectation that the promise would be passed on through Joseph, which was what he originally thought it would be in Genesis 37, according to those dreams, right? I mean, Jacob, the, old, the father thought, this is my favorite boy. He's got the dreams. This is going to happen. It's the, the promise is going to be carried on through him. That was entirely reasonable, entirely sensible, and entirely wrong. Joseph is the hero of the story. I mean, he is. He's the most spotless character we ever meet in the book of Genesis. I mean, he's the firstborn of the beloved wife, Rachel. Surely he was the ideal man to carry the blessing of Abraham. Surely. Yet God determined that the line of promise should not descend according to human merit, but according to grace. The line through which the Messiah would come would not consist of spotless heroes. Rather, it would go through the memorable union of Judah with Tamar, his Canaanite daughter-in-law, whom Judah had mistaken for a prostitute. That's where my son's coming through. And God wanted to make clear that his choice of those whom he saves is not based, like we saw last week, on performance. He can use the good and the bad alike. Entry into his kingdom is not limited to ex the exemplary, exemplary character of people like Joseph, but it's open to tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and drug dealers, gang members. It's even open to people like me, arrogant overachievers. Who are far too impressed with themselves sometimes. The father's love extends to the immoral younger brother in Luke 15 who only wants the father's money so they run away from home 
And the father's love extends to the moral elder brothers who only want the father's money but choose to stay at home. They're both sinful to the core. They're both selfish to the core. One's moral, one's immoral. God invites them both into the kingdom and both to repent. One to repent of their morality and the other to repent of their immorality. Because morality damns as many as immorality do. And this gives hope to us all. Because if God can save a Joseph, which he does, and transform him and make him this beautiful reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God can save Judah, this wretched man, then he can save us. William Bridge, an old writer in the 1600s, writes the following about how we might argue with ourselves and think about this. He says, though God be strong and able to help me, yet I fear that God is not willing to help me. I know God is able and that God is strong enough, but I fear the Lord is not willing and therefore I am discouraged. Yet be of good comfort, saith the Lord, for my name is merciful. The Lord, the Lord, the mighty God, that is my name, therefore I am able to help thee. And my name is merciful, therefore I am, a, I am willing to help thee. Be of good comfort. My name is gracious. I do not show mercy because you are good, but because I am good. Nor do I stand upon your deserving, but I show mercy out of my free love. Oh, but I've been sinning. I've been sinning a long time, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Therefore, I fear there's no mercy for me. Yet saith the Lord, be of good comfort, for my name is long-suffering. I am slow to anger. Art thou abundant in sin? I am abundant in goodness. I forgive even all sorts and all kinds of sins. And this is my name forever. So when our sins try to convince us or our pattern of life or our background tries to convince us that surely God can't be gracious and merciful to me, we remember that his name is merciful and his name is gracious and his name is long-suffering. And where we are abundant in sin, he is abundant in goodness. So how can God be this way? How can God forgive our sins in such a scandalous way? Well, it's because the lion of the tribe of Judah has come. That's why. The fulfillment of Genesis 49 has already happened, at least in one sense. It will happen in a greater fulfillment in his second coming. But it has certainly happened in his first coming. Revelation chapter 5 speaks of this man. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's why so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Pastor Keith talked about this in Sunday school this morning, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for, from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to forgive our sins because he died for them. That's what it says. He was slain 
and by his blood, he has ransomed people for God. In closing, let me read this quote from John Piper about this image of the lion of the tribe of Judah. He says, the most magnificent thing about the lion of the tribe of Judah in his, is his fulfillment, in his fulfillment of Jacob's prophecy is that he lays claim on the obedience of all the peoples of the world, not by exploiting our guilt and crushing us with it into submission, but by bearing our guilt and freeing us to love him and praise him and obey with joy forever. The lion of Judah is the lamb who was slain. He wins our obedience by forgiving our sins and making his own obedience, his own perfection, as the righteous one, the basis of our acceptance with God. And in this position of immeasurable safety and joy, all of it owing to his suffering and righteousness and death and resurrection, he wins our free and happy obedience. Does he have yours? This is when we read of Jacob's prophecy of Judah, and it says in verse 9, that to him, that is to the one who comes from the line of Judah, will be the obedience of all the peoples. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he'll win obedience to himself. But notice how he does it. He doesn't win obedience by saying, you die for me. He wins obedience by saying, I'll die for you. And that is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Because we know that if we have a king who will lay his life down for us, he can be trusted. And we love him. And we hold to him. And we say, come, Lion of Judah. Come, Lord Jesus. Come back. Let the weeping tarry no more. Let joy come. And there will be no more weeping and no more tears for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he will conquer and he will continue to conquer until the day he comes again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to meditate on your word this morning, to think about what you are doing and have done in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for this reminder of his autobiography of the ones with whom he fellowships. Lord Jesus, you were not just a friend of sinners on earth. You've been a friend of sinners for a long, long time before that. You were a friend of a sinner named Judah and you're friends of sinners like us, moral and immoral alike. We thank you that we all need you. We all need you to provide for us the righteousness and the forgiveness that we could never achieve on our own. And we thank you that through the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb who was slain, who has conquered, who has shed his blood and was slain for us so that we might be reconciled and ransomed. We thank you that we can have hope this morning, that there's grace available for all of us and there's hope for all of us because of your record of how you've dealt with your people. Fill us with hope. Fill us with grace. Change us. Make us to be like you, lovers of the broken, lovers of those who have no one to love them. Make us to be like yourself. 
as a result of your great grace and mercy and loving kindness and long suffering toward us. We pray all this in the name of our mighty line of Judah, Jesus. Amen.